Welcome to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast, where you will find sermons, devotional thoughts, and current event conversations, all based on a biblical worldview. Little icebreaker this morning, and these icebreakers kind of help me relax. I don't know what it is, but, you know, the more I get up here, the more I'm starting to feel inadequate to the task. So it'll, it'll help me out if I can break the ice with something. So here's a question to you. What is your favorite Christmas hymn? Oh, Holy Night. Mary, did you know? Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. How about this one? <clears throat> Silent Night. Like that, Away in a Manger. Yeah, those were, I remember those from when I was a kid. We sang them a lot. And, you know, it's interesting because back in those days, we probably sang as many hymns in public school as we did in church. In fact, more so. I don't know what's going on right now, but I remember those times, and I remember the season of Christmas and how nice it was. <clears throat> now, before I start today's talk, I want to give credit to a couple people. First of all, I want to give some credit to my wife, who, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> who continued to urge me to watch a sermon by an evangelical over in Katie that she had watched. And I got to tell you, I, I really didn't want to watch it. Um, but I did. And because I watched it, I then became impressed that what that person was talking about was what I needed to talk about. And so, well, a large part of this sermon has been developed. I, you know, I, I've, I've developed it. There's a pretty fair portion of it, too, that was developed by and presented by a pastor named Nathan Bolt, who's over in the Katy area. So I, I like to give credit where those things are due, but ultimately, Pastor Bolt and I, hopefully, received the message from the Lord. I just had to receive it a little bit different way than maybe Pastor Bolt did. So I want to go ahead and begin today's story, I should say our, our sermon, with those particular credits. You know, And here we find ourselves, once again, this time of year, Christmas, that just nice time of the year that everybody enjoys, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You know, it's not an appointed feast. There's nothing in our Bible that tells us to do this. There was nothing, of course, that the Jews ever did with it because he hadn't come yet. But yet we celebrate this every year, and it's nice. We also unite with, our, with other Christians throughout the world in celebrating the birth of our Lord and Jesus Christ. It's important to note that Jesus' birth sets in motion God's plan for the redemption of all who will be born into this sin-sick world. We all know by heart John 3.16, which says, and repeat with me, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. 
So as we proceed with today's message, let us keep in mind that what we talk about today is centered on God's plan for our redemption. Most of us know the story of Jesus' birth. If there's someone here that doesn't, there will be a couple scripture references today that you can go back and open a Bible and read to find out about the account for yourself. One thing that we sometimes forget during this Christmas season is there's actually two miraculous births that take place not too far apart from each other. What we'd like to do today is explore the birth and the relationship of the two babes who were miraculously born. And I'd also like to consider the mission of the one that, I'm sorry, I've, mis, I've miswritten this. I would also like to consider the mission of one and how that babe's mission applies to us today. This time of year, it's very natural for us to turn our focus mainly upon Jesus' birth and the events that surround Jesus' birth. We see those events depicted in children's plays and stable and manger scenes that we encounter. Some of us may have even put one of them up in our own yard. And we love the season. In modern times, we hear people repeat this particular phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season. I have news. Jesus is the reason for every season. We should be keeping our eyes focused upon him always. So again, I'd like us to consider, though, including someone in this story who is often overlooked and was key to setting the stage for Jesus' mission. His birth and mission were closely intertwined with Jesus, and he is none other than John the Baptizer. We know him as John the Baptist. I'm starting to refer to him more as John the Baptizer because John was not baptized in the Baptist church. Okay, that didn't go over very well. All right. <laughs> well, let's, so let's go ahead and let's review the Bible record. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke are where we are informed about the birth of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to review some things. I'm not going to read all of those scriptures. We would be here for a long time, and most of you already know the story. Matthew 1, Matthew chapter 1, through chapter 2 and verse 12, tells us about Jesus' genealogy as a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. It informs us of the nature of Mary's conception by the Holy Spirit, it talks to us about Joseph's struggle when finding out that his betrothed was pregnant. It also speaks to us about the angel's message to Joseph and Joseph's obedience to take Mary as his wife. And the story also of the wise men is included in this. We turn to Luke, the first chapter verses 26 through 38, 
And that tells us of Gabriel's visitation to Mary. Talks to us also about Gabriel calming Mary's fear. His announcement, that is Gabriel's announcement, that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit. That her baby would be named Jesus. And he would be the promised Messiah. It informs us that Mary submits herself wholly and completely to God's will. Before he departs, Mary also, I'm sorry, Gabriel also informs Mary of the miraculous conception of another child that is soon to be born. That child, of course, is John the Baptizer. Luke's book actually begins with the circumstances surrounding John the Baptizer's birth, and his father, Zacharias, we find is serving in the temple at Jerusalem. It is part of the normal rotation that took place twice a year within Israel among the families of the Levites. Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth, are advanced in years beyond childbearing years, but by lot he's chosen to burn incense upon the altar. I'm going to read to you out of Luke, the first chapter, verses 11 through 17. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Note that Zechariah and his wife have been praying for a child. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the account continues by speaking next of Zacharias's doubt. He doubts the angel's message in face of his own prayer being answered, he's also aware that someone else who was old and beyond childbearing years, he and his wife, Abraham, had experienced a miraculous birth, but yet he's in doubt. So Gabriel, or the angel, where he's not married, tells Zacharias that he'll be struck mute until John's circumcision and naming. So upon John's circumcision and naming, 
Zechariah is given back his voice and prophesies by the Holy Spirit. He begins by praising the Lord God of Israel for his redemption, provided by the soon birth of Christ, and then proceeds to prophesy about his own son. Luke, the first chapter, verses 76 through 79, reads as follows. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. We're told in the books of John and Mark about the relationship between the two children that are to be miraculously born. John 1, verses 6 through 9, say there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. We're being told here that John is in fact the herald of Jesus Christ. And in Mark, the first chapter, verses 1 through 5, says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John is the herald of Jesus Christ. Verse tells us about John's mission but verses 4 and 5 tell us how he carries it out. Watch what's emphasized in verse 4 and 5. I'll be repeating it again. John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Something I want to call to note here, the word repentance, or some form of it, is found 57 times in the New Testament. It's become a word that a lot of us just are not comfortable with. We're not comfortable with it partly because of the society that we've been brought up in. It's also worthy to note just briefly that 23 times in the Old Testament you find this. 
But if we find repentance measured, mentioned 57 times in the New Testament, I think we need to pay attention. So I'm going to read to you some scriptural, scriptural uh, scriptures, I should say, from the New Testament that use the word repentance to, I'm sorry, drive the point home. Those that are said by John in Matthew 3, verse 2, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, verse 8. This is to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not think to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. Matthew 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto Repentance. Luke 3, verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So we see that John the baptizer, being Jesus' herald, and being the one to prepare the way for the soon coming Messiah, is delivering a central message based on repentance and remission of sin. If preparing to meet Jesus requires repentance, it follows that you cannot come to Christ unless you repent. Cannot come to Christ unless you repent. But, Let's take a look and see if that message changed any when Jesus came on the scene. So here, instances where Jesus makes statements in this regard. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to pre preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 9, 13 and Mark 2, verse 17 read the same. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Mark 6, verse 12. And this is, by the way, the disciples being sent out. And this is what the disciples were instructed. So they went out and preached the people that the people should repent. Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that was Jesus saying that. Luke 15, 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And finally, our last reference from Jesus, then Luke 24, verse 46 through 48, then he said to him, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. But what about after Jesus ascends to heaven? Does the, mission does the message change at all? There's ten occurrences in the book of Acts where repentance or some form are mentioned. I'm going to read two, and we'll close off our examples. 
Acts 2, verse 37 through 38. Now when they had heard this, they were all cut to the heart. This is Peter. Peter preaching on Pentecost. Now when they heard this, they were all cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And finally, in Acts 17.30, this is Paul speaking at Athens. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Is there any question in regard to the mission of John and the mission of Jesus Christ? We are to repent and come to Christ. So you might ask this question. I think it's fair enough. Why the emphasis on repentance? This is Christmas. Well, the Christmas story tells us about the incarnation of the one who created everything we see in this world and everything we see in the sky at night and beyond. The creator of all humbles himself to be born into his own creation for the sake of saving us, cloaking himself in humanity and all its liabilities and resisting it, res risking it all to redeem us. That's what the Christmas story tells us. So let's answer the question of why the emphasis on repentance. First of all, the church is in need of repentance. Second, the world is lost and in desperate need of a relationship with the child born in Bethlehem. Jesus is coming back soon and the time left to get ready is growing very short. So I want to talk a little bit about the Christian church, and I'm not talking, we're part of the, we are, whether we like it, like it or not, we are acknowledge it or not, we are part of the Christian church. There's a larger church out there that has a lot of people that are true worshipers of Jesus Christ. A lot of people in our church as well. But a while back, a debate erupted within evangelical Christianity over the lordship of Christ in the life of the believer. I don't know how many of you are aware of that. It's quite a tussle. It may still be going on because I don't pay that close attention to it. But I am aware that it happened. The debate centered on whether one can be saved without making Jesus the Lord of their life. The debate included whether or not Repentance was necessary to be saved. So why am I bringing this up? Because everything that happens in the world and everything that happens in Christian churches finds its way into ours. And perhaps some of the things I say following up here, you might start to recognize having heard little echoes of that from time to time within our own churches. 
without engaging a long discussion as to why this no-lordship philosophy provides excuse for gross sin within the church. It goes so far that many of the no-lordship party even advocate that repentance is not required to be saved. As a matter of fact, only a momentary intellectual acceptance of Jesus dying for our sins is necessary. One can, without worry of being lost, slip right back to where they came from for the rest of their life and still be saved. No lordship, no acknowledgement of anything except an intellectual assent to the notion that Jesus came to save us. A little humorous note in the middle of this, if you can find some humor in it. How many of you have heard of John MacArthur? He's no friend of Adventist, you know that. Pretty charismatic preacher, no friend of Adventists. But he addressed the problem in two books, The Gospel According to Jesus and Faith Works, both authored by him. He did a credible job of not only pointing out the gross pitfalls of the no-lordship theology, but defending the notion that Christ should be the Lord of the converted Christian and that lordship should be reflected in a changed life. That's amazing coming from a Calvinist because that's Armenian thought. Huh. He did so well that some of his opponents, get this, accused him of being a Seventh-day Adventist. John MacArthur, you're in good company. You'll never hear this sermon. <laughs> As Adventists, though, we believe that the Bible is the basis of all truth above and beyond all other. Let there be no question of that. No matter what our critics may say, all they would have to do is spend a few minutes in an Adventist church and they would go ahead and recognize that. I don't know about you, but I've kind of changed the way I think about things. If I want to know what somebody believes, I ask them. I don't assume that their church has a certain set of doctrines because, frankly speaking, it's like scrambled eggs out there right now anyhow. You can, you can find anything you want in any church, in any place, at any name. So I ask people. Above and beyond all other, the Bible, there is no other basis of truth. Truth is absolute and not subjective, and it provides the answer to all of life's pertinent questions. But rather than turning to the Bible, the culture we are surrounded with today is trying to answer the questions that the Bible answers in a way different than God has answered those questions in his holy word. Instead of the biblical notion of repentance, the world says that you are perfect the way you are. How satanic is that? The Bible clearly and unequivocally teaches a message of repentance and salvation from sin. We're invited to come to him as we are, but we must be willing to turn our back on sin and take on the new life Jesus offers us. 
Jesus can call you to salvation, but you cannot come to him without turning away from your sin. The story of the rich young ruler provides a prime example of someone encountering Jesus Christ, but not willing to give up his sin. You do all know what the sin of the rich young ruler was. He did not care for other human beings. He cared only for himself and his riches. Now, if you want to call what I've just said legalism, so be it. In that case, I am, and I will remain a legalist. Further, the Bible does not teach a message of celebration of sin. We have seen sinful lifestyles increasingly paraded through the streets of our cities, showcased on the media, and invited into an ever-increasing number of school systems. The Bible enjoins us to teach our young ones the way of the Lord. It does not direct us to normalize clearly sinful lifestyles or indoctrinate our children in the deviance promoted today. The Bible does not depict the lost as having something good to share with us, but rather that we should call them to repent and turn to Christ. That does not mean compromising our Christian values to somehow open an avenue to bring the lost to Christ. Where were we taught that? You see, over time as Christians, we have allowed a serious flaw to creep into our thinking. Somewhere along the way, we began to think that loving the lost meant letting the lost lead us. In so doing, we've adapted to their way of thinking, their way of behaving, their way of living. And we need to immediately repent of that. Loving the lost does not mean changing us, Loving the lost means getting lost, getting the lost out of their place of lostness and getting them to where they are found safe in Christ Jesus. That is what loving the lost means. You know, all illustrations kind of break down, but I'm going to use this one to kind of illustrate the, the, the point. Suppose you had a goldfish. The goldfish thrived in a nice large bowl prepared with attractive plants and a castle and provided nutritious, healthy food and all it needed to be happy. As it viewed things outside the tank, it became curious about whatever cool things might be outside the tank. One day it leaps out of the tank and finds itself flopping around gasping for air. Some of you may have had this happen and discovered it too late. I had that happen. Except for someone coming along, seeing it flopping around, desperate for air, the fish dies. The only way the fish lives is if someone comes along and puts it back in the bowl where it was intended to be. We were always intended to be in Christ. 
We were never intended to be outside. So it is with the lost. Unless we lift them up and bring them to Jesus, they will die an eternal death. Jesus is not a solution among a number of solutions to our problems. He is the solution to all of our problems, period. Until we believe this, no one else, no one else will believe it from us either. The Christmas story is about God meeting us where we are and leading us to salvation guaranteed by Christ if we are willing to turn away from our sins and follow him. And if we've come to love him, we are charged with bringing the truth to the lost as we once were. Someone brought it to us. Every single one of us. We need to bring it to others. So in closing, when you're opening those presents around the tree tonight or tomorrow morning, remember that gift God gave us in the birth of his son. And remember a moment, the one who served you. And remember for a moment, referring to John the Baptist, the one who served at Jesus' herald and lost his life for it. And consider this with all seriousness. Jesus is returning soon, and we are charged with preparing the way. That means guiding the lost to repentance and a full life in Jesus Christ. The message that John delivered was that of Elijah, and we are the Elijah of the last days. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast. You can find us at woodlandsadventist.org and you can visit us anytime. You're more than welcome. God bless you and have a great day.